0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website
1: at audiodharma.org.
0: So thank you for having us. Can you hear me? Great. Love it when technology works. So yes, thank you for having us. It's always an honor to be here at uh, IMC. We actually feel very supported by this community and by Gil himself. Um, people have been coming in from this community, in, meaning into San Quentin State Prison, for a good four or five years, mostly through the uh, chaplaincy training that happens here. As a matter of fact, I think two three weeks from now we have another group of visitors. So, um, I've been working in San Quentin for for 19 years and uh, basically been pioneering an application of mindfulness and uh, finding language and implementation of it for uh, a multi-ethnic incarcerated and largely underserved population. So mostly people that frankly just don't have access to this kind of material. And it's been a wild ride It's been an incredible journey for me personally. I I, I fall to my knees frequently uh, in in gratefulness of having discovered just uh, this path of of working this way. Um, Out of all these years of of working this program that was mentioned, uh, Guiding Rage Into Power, GRIP, Uh, emerged and uh, it's a year long program and it has four elements to it basically it's um, learning how to stop your violence kind of exploring the first rule of the universe do no harm easier said than done, right? secondly, uh, developing emotional intelligence thirdly cultivating mindfulness, and fourth, uh, understanding victim impact. So mindfulness in itself is, we often refer to it as the mother of all interventions, because it pretty much teaches the difference between having a blind reaction or a cultivated response, i.e. a choice in the matter. So it's fair to say that learning that difference is the most potent thing in committing a crime or not. So it's very practical, and there's nothing esoteric about it. And as we learned how to observe and and witness and, and build a connection more vertically, it also became apparent that that didn't necessarily mean that you could also make that insight operational in on the horizontal level, meaning the world of relationships. And that's where the emotional intelligence piece came in. Um, There's a Native American saying, Navajo saying, wherein they describe uh, an offender in that community as he or she who acts as if they have no relatives. He or she who acts as if they have no relatives. I find that very poignant as a way into exploring, you know, what does it mean to offend and and what do we do when someone offends? What if a crime, other than being an offence, was also an inarticulate plea for help? Darn inarticulate, you know, not to underdo that, but a plea nonetheless. What, What if it was a a symptom of a greater social breakdown, right? As the saying referred to uh, an experience of not being bonded. Accountability tends to emerge through experiencing meaningful relationship. So what if we start looking through that lens? Um, Marshall Rosenberg has a saying about violence where he describes Violence as the tragic expression, always, the tragic expression of an unmet need. So what we try to do is to take all that insight and develop a technology of sorts that says, you know, prison could be a place to transform yourself rather than a warehouse where you get put for a lengthy Period of time. So um, if we have that technology, you know, why not use it? Right? It costs $60,000 to house a prisoner in California. I think Stanford's not too far from here, and I think you can get room, board, and tuition for that amount. And the average recidivism rate is 64% in California. So when we started out a while back, our mission statement was to change the mission statement of the Department of Corrections, which really literally said it was punishment only. That was the task of corrections. It is now called, I think we made a contribution to it. You always have to give away the credit on these things. But I think it's fair to say we made a contribution towards it now being called Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. However, more money went to station changing the stationary than to actual <laughs> programs. So there's a lot of work to be done. The good news is, as you may have noticed in the news, there's a pendulum swinging f- towards more rehabilitation, towards more prison reform. So we have 182 graduates over the last four years with this program and uh, most of them are life-sentenced prisoners. Life-sentenced with the the opportunity for parole. There's about 34,000 life-sentenced prisoners in California alone. 44, I just learned one was added yesterday. 44 of these graduates are out, meaning, you know, having given uh, a release date by the parole board and left prison and zero percent of them have come back so we're pretty stoked and proud of that number it also shows you that there's a different way to do this because we feel not only are these people out and over two and a half million dollars a year gets saved over those people that's your taxpayers money but public safety improved Preventing re-victimization is achieved while people are being safely released. The program is um, a for us, by us, about us approach. We also talk about it as normative culture, wherein um, a strong feeling of ownership is urged by everybody who's a stakeholder. That very much includes the men. And so they are trained Selected a number of them, to learn how to teach the program. And so we're starting to go into some other prisons, hopefully one of them being Soledad, where some of your Sangha members are volunteering, um, with the help of the Sangha. Um, and so the program is being spread, opportunities for work are being created. We, we call it changing the stigma into a badge. These men are change agents, and they, uh, they serve their brothers and sisters that are still incarcerated with what they've learned. And so when we graduate, we graduate in caps and gowns. And, you know, that's a big deal for a lot of the men. Um, Families invite invited, and the uh, San Quentin choir breaks the house down. And it's a real uh, festive moment where we say, okay, you know, we don't get to say that these men are safe to be released, but we're saying, we're making a statement that they're ready. Because they have taken a year to learn, to understand the moment that led them to the crime. And uh, the goal has been to never lose a moment like that again. And they sign a pledge, too, of uh, nonviolence, and they do it in front of the community on graduation day and it's a very moving moment you know, to be able to give back to communities in Richmond, Oakland, Bayview, men that are safe, and that know a thing or two about how to resolve conflict around them so um, I'm going to cut short what I'm going to say because I brought two of my co-conspirators here, Terrell Merritt and George Luna. I think uh, they're much more than just ex-offenders, but uh, for today we'll speak from that angle. Uh, so I want to give them the mic. Um, but I did want to share a little bit uh, what we're learning in, in the prison. Or prisons, I should say now. What are we learning about what it takes to leave prison before you get out? That's the title of our curriculum. Leaving prison before you get out. So these weren't things that we were after as goals to learn, but that sort of have emerged as, oh, oh, this is what we're learning. What are the criteria, right, to leave prison before you get out? We're learning that being human is having entered the contract to learn how to listen. That learning how to listen, as Tillich said, is the first duty of love. And perhaps the truest expression of worship. We're learning that the cure for the pain is in the pain, as Rumi says. And that in healing, every wound is also a movement that cuts me open. It's not only a cut, it's also an opening. However, if I don't show up for the pain of the cut, neither will I receive the blessing that comes through that opening. We're learning in the words of David Ridge that true forgiveness is not an action after a fact, and the result of a process, but an attitude attitude with which we enter each moment. We learn that being free isn't just a geographical fact. It's not just where you are. It's not just the other side of the gate. The heart of being free is not knowing where I am, but who I am. Or, or maybe even more precisely, asking who I am. We're learning to say thank you a lot as a true guide to find our place in the scheme of things. We're learning to accept each person and every situation as our teacher. We're learning to appreciate how true freedom lives in understanding that this moment is all there is, just as it is. And then finally, we're learning that love is not so much a feeling, but a way of being present. So these are the pearls that come out of the hell realm these days, you know. This is really uh, an incredible experiment to be part of. And there's uh, uh, more and more other good programs emerging. And uh, we had a TEDx uh, in in San Quentin last week. And um, the call was made, the call to redesign the way prison happens in America, you know, because these innovations have gone through technology, design, education, medicine, but our prisons are lagging behind so badly, so badly. And there's a dignity that we all lose when we don't go there and change that. You know, we all get the limp that whether you feel it consciously or not. And conversely, when they become hubs of change, rehab universities, uh, we're helping people we never met and never seen, as the poet says. So, enough said. I want to introduce you to uh, Terrell Merritt, who um, did a, a chunk of time that he will talk about. And he's been very recently, really. How long have you been out now?
2: Almost three months.
0: Almost three months, okay.
2: Terrell. OK, can everyone hear me? <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to sit with you guys today. This has been my first time being able to sit with a Asanga in almost three months. And I can just feel that difference from sitting alone to once again sitting amongst Asanga. And uh, <laughs> I spent 20 years in prison for second degree murder. Now, before that, I never saw myself as a violent person but because I was never physically violent. But all that time, I was violent. I was emotionally violent. I was verbally violent in so many other ways. And those culminated one day in me bottling all this stuff up and murdering Cassandra Stewart. And as I sat, in prison, I thought about it, I I said I don't ever want to again react to a situation with violence. But I didn't quite know how to do that except to say that and, and put forth an effort, but not really know how to dig in there and release that stuff that I bottled up inside of myself. And so I began to search. And as I searched, a friend of mine invited me to sit in the sangha, in prison. And, I, and that was just like just some new transformation for me, being able to just sit with myself. And then eventually, other components came into my life, such as the GRIP program through Inside Out with Jock. And I learned to understand the components of violence that I, did not, I didn't believe in in the beginning of Understanding verbal violence, emotional violence, you know, as compared to physical violence and how they lead. And I also learned how to, there was a, there's a one acronym that we use called the CETA, S E T A. And it stands for Sensations, Emotions, Thoughts, and Actions. And that was very meaningful to me because it taught me to understand that. First of all, before I even get to that point, my body is telling me something. My sensations are there. And this sensation happens, and a lot of times, I didn't recognize it. And then it, invokes, it evokes an emotion. I didn't recognize that. That's two red flags I just blow right by. And then there's how I interpret it, my thoughts, which leads to my action. And then there's the piece where there's another acronym called STOP. Stop to observe and process when you're in that moment where something's happening. And before this blind reaction happens, you can actually stop. Take a breath. (coughs) And just process everything that's going on. Observe it and process it and then respond in an in a open and heartfelt manner in a way that is basically good for us all. And that was just so huge for me to learn that, just to be able to actually put that into actions to, to just reach inside of myself and see that I don't have to be violent, not emotionally, not verbally, and definitely not physically. It was just amazing for me just to sit back and work with the emotional intelligence that I was gaining, little by little, insight, understanding the things that went on in the past, how they contribute to how I go forward in my future. I didn't know any of that beforehand. I was going around and through life as a reactionary Just something happens, and I just react to it. Instead of actually being a participant in the world around me, I felt like life was happening to me. When in reality, a lot of my past was becoming somebody else's future. Because the stuff that I didn't deal with, I was taking out on others. And when I really came to that point, it kind of made me real sad. And it made me feel that all this time, this is what I had been doing, and it was it was kind of depressing. And I had to come to come to grips with that—no pun intended. <laughs> I had to come to grips with that, and to actually understand all of those things. But also, to a point where I said, "Well, how can I be of service instead of being a person that's out there taking or out there hurting other people?" Because, as a matter of fact, there's another. Another term that we, that we use, and it's called hurt people, hurt people. And I was one of those hurt people out there just reacting, hurting other people. But now I'm in a process, a new process, of being a healed person out trying to heal other people. Trying to be that person in the world that I want to see in the world, that person that I want to, I want to encounter. right now I'm living in San Francisco and I I live in the tenderloin and I sit up in the window and I just look out and it's amazing because three months ago I couldn't look out when I I look out there as a wall I couldn't see out into society and society couldn't see me and I felt invisible but now I look out the window and just observe. And there's so many things to observe that a lot, of, a lot of us just took for granted and a lot of people still take for granted. The colors, the sounds, just taking in the beauty of the world. And just being able to do that once again, I'm really appreciative. It's, it's humbling just to sit back and walk in the rain. And just smell the air listen to the sounds, and connect. There's so much suffering, but at the same time, there's so much life going on. And we can all just be a part of that. And going through the program, I realized that it's easy to reach out and touch that if I allow myself, if we allow ourselves. And there's so many men still in there working on that and looking out and so many men that don't, don't have access to that that I wish that I could reach out to. And I think about all the pain and I look around and I see you guys and I say to myself, everybody's been touched by violence. Everybody's been touched by violence. Right now I'd like to say to you as a person who has harmed, who has got out there and committed violence. And if you've ever been a victim or someone you love, been a victim of violence, even though I wasn't directly the person, I would like to say I'm sorry for what you've been through. Because no one should have to go through that. No one should have to feel that. and I'm sorry uh, excuse me Uh, I'll just leave it there Mm -hmm. I'll pass it to George Mm -hmm. thank you thank you so much for listening
3: I'm going to stand because I like standing for what I believe in. Um, My name is George Luna. I'm from Hollister, California, from the Central Coast, over near Salinas by Soledad. um, Down there, um, they shoot it up every day down there. It's a very violent area, and I grew up in a very violent environment. I know there's a lot of different factors why it came out the way I did, but um, I'm on the road to uh, making a change in the world. Um, I grew up in the movement with my father, who was... uh, Cesar Chavez is a main organizer, so I came from a, a nonviolent movement to becoming a very violent man, and I had no idea how that happened or what, what took place, knew nothing about my feelings and the pain that I had inside me from being abused and all the things that I went through as a kid, but such is life, you know, you just keep on going on, and I became very callous and very mean and didn't care, and um, I pushed back. People push on me, I push back, no matter who it was, society, um, authority, school, I didn't care. Ended up getting me into prison, and um, I was on the installment plan. I did a lot of years traveling all over, um, what I used to call a state-imposed vacation. How stupid that sounds now when I say that. (laughs) But um, nevertheless, I made the tours of Soledad, Susanville, Jamestown, Folsom, San Quentin nine times, never had a term there, and all these other places that I went. And I was one of those guys who thrived on those really violent yards where there's a lot of banging, a lot of stuff going on. I thrived there. I liked it. I felt home there. In fact, I was the guy who raised his hand to go do all the crazy stuff that no one else wanted to do. But um, unfortunately, um, I believe in Providence, and uh, Providence uh, sent me the last time to San Quentin, first time to do actually a term there, not to just... A stopover to get ships sent anywhere else, but in order to do a, a hearing, being sent back to do a hearing for a serious case or anything like that, I actually did a term there. But when I got on the yard, first thing I noticed is there's no what they call funk in there. I didn't like it. I I didn't feel the tension or nothing, and I wasn't used to that. So, um, but there's a lot of education going on, and um, my dad and mother always uh, preached um, the power of education. And uh, I got it later, but I missed it then. But anyway, so I, um, I wanted to get out of this place. I was going to already commit to so, do something so I can get out and get shipped out and get somewhere else more comfortable. But something kept calling me when I would walked by this room, and Jock was in there teaching. And so one day I said, it's raining, it's cold, let's go and see what they're doing. So I went in there, I started listening, and I started realizing something that um, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm, for an intelligent guy, maybe I'm just being stupid and not realizing this. And then I started trying to figure what was Jock doing in here, what is his angle? What the, why is this man in here? You know, what is it is it is it money? Is it there's something he's got to be getting there, right? Because that's that's the world, right? How wrong I was! How I found out is a guy was just a damn good guy, blew me away. Easy thing like that, but it was an epiphany to me that I had to change my ways and learn something. And so um, with the gusto, I started every education program they had there. I mean, I with the veracity, I went after it, and I started getting other people to come. Made a lot of enemies that way, though. Not only on my side, but on the, the ones that were the green, because they didn't like what I was doing. I'm taking their job security away, because I'm telling people the right way to do it. I'm teaching them what I've learned from Jock, To the point where um, I was two weeks to come home, and um, an individual that me and Jock both know, and he didn't like Jock or what he was doing and what he was representing. So he um, accused me of something and sent me to the hole, and they gave me an additional two years of something I didn't do. And the day he gave it to me uh, in the hearing, he had turned off the recorder even. And he said, hey, remember all that grandstanding luna used to do out there, all that school and preaching? He goes, how do you like me now? And then he turned it back on. He goes, you're found guilty for all those things. I did two years. I didn't do nothing. And I was like, but this is the thing is I learned something. I no longer get mad, I get motivated. And I live by that. So he pissed me off. But he told me something that, all right, I'm going to change this. They're not going to break me down. So when I got released, I had a plan. I had my plan. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to make a difference. And within five years, I'll be back in prison, working, helping people. It took me two and a half years just to get back in school. They didn't want me back in there. You know, My record, they all made excuses. I tried all the community colleges. But I finally got in. And um, I'm almost going to graduate. I have a 3.7 right now. Uh, I'm a communication major. I'll be transferring next year to San Jose State. Um, I do speaking engagements. I spoke at the university level already. Um, I've had newspaper articles about me. But I don't care about any of that. What I care about is the work that I'm doing for Jacques right now. And um, I uh, passed a milestone not too long ago. Um, He invited me back where I'm going in with five and a half years. I missed it by half a year. But I did re-enter prison, and I, I am teaching the GRIP program with Jacques right now. And I'm so thrilled and um, indebted to you for giving me that opportunity. But yesterday, um, I went because Jacques had a prior engagement, and I, I taught the thing on my own yesterday. And so for me to sit there inside a maximum prison, when they all said I was no good, I never amount to nothing, and I'd never make a change, it was a big thing for me. And I loved it. And But... The thing that got me there is learning that I had to heal myself. I was a broken guy, man. I I had so many things inside of me that I was hurting on. But I didn't know how to deal with it. I just didn't know how to deal. Now I face it. I'm not afraid to admit or to cry in front of anybody. I'm not afraid to admit anything that I have did. I've done some terrible things. But I've also done some great things. And I have a mother who brought me up to do good things. And I want to make her proud. I want to make my kids proud. My grandchildren proud. But most of all, I want to make George happy. And I feel good about myself now. I'm not that guy when people look at me. Who are you looking at? I don't got that attitude. I don't care no more. I'm a communication major. So all I care about communicating and finding a resolution to things. I don't want to bump heads with nobody. I I live to teach now and let everyone know that you can make a difference. You can change your life. And you can uh, give some worth. I have worth. I have value. And I want to give back to the world. So, like I live like Gandhi says, you know, I want to be that change in the world that I want to see in the world, so if you got it 's like i 've always told people, even when I walk the line and stuff, you know I back it i don 't just talk and I back what I do. So just like I used to run and raise my hand and back that nonsense and that evil that I used to do, I back what I do now, and I back it with my my walk. I, I go into the prisons. In fact, when over there they admit I, I go, working in Ana yesterday. And um, it's out in the valley. Nobody goes out there. And I guess they were telling us that no one would volunteer to go out there to do NA and AA meetings. Well, there I go. I'm going out there, too. You know, I don't care. I'll do whatever I got to do to give back and reach somebody so they can get the message. Now, if I can reach one, I have did my job. If I could reach more, then I've done a fantastic job. And I'm not a half-stepper. I want to do a fantastic job. I want everyone to know. But with support of people like you and support of CDC who now added that R finally in there, you know, we can do this. Together, shoulder to shoulder, we can do this. We can make a difference and an impact in the world, but it's all about healing. And I can stand here before you today that I'm a healed man. I'm a very healed man. I have no qualms about anything, no no past problems come in front of me. I just work through it, through communication. Like I said, at school, I'm not only a... An honor student, I'm a two-term senator there. I've been sent to uh, um, for the General Assembly of California, to represent our school. I've been sent to Sacramento to represent our school. I've done all these great things, but like I said, the most important thing to me is that George is back home. I know who I am again. I'm centered. I realize who I am. I breathe every morning, every day. When when people get me mad in those times, when like before I used to snap, I can't believe it. That guy used to just fly off and do things. Now, sisters. Are, <laughs> you know, and, and for my family, for my family to see, you got to understand, i got a really, really big family. I'm the youngest of 13, 10 older brothers. I was abused a lot, so I came out real tough. But for all my family down there, they, I come home and they see me and they hear that what I'm doing now. They can't believe it. They can't believe it. I was that crazy, wild one. If anything happened, they'd call, hey, this guy did this. Can you come handle it? And I'd go running. Now they call me to talk them down from something, you know. And it's a good feeling. I, I love the feeling of them knowing that don't call me to beat somebody up. Call me because you need, you're hurt and you need someone to talk to. And I'm that guy. I'll be there to listen to you and care for you and hug you and hold you and stand beside you. I'm not that violent and mean man no more. And just like he said, I, too, apologize for any havoc that I've reached in the world, and whether it reached you or somebody you know, I totally apologize from the bottom of my heart. I am not that guy. I used to, and he's a far cry from the guy you see before you today. Thank you very much.
0: Wow. I think you can spell that backwards. (laughs) Say it again, wow. Um, So we thought... um, Since a lot of this happens between four walls that are very effective, we'd have a larger than usual question and answer period. And uh, I think if you can get the mic when you have a question, raise your hand and a mic will come to you.
4: Um, My name is Noreen, and I've actually had a nephew that I visited in Vacaville for nine years, so it's kind of brought back, having to leave him there. But I teach at a middle school now, and there's a lot of kids, and I'm really worried about... I've been worried about them since kindergarten, because they don't have... They don't have this, and I don't know what... I, I mean, we take... We start... I'm teaching science now, and we start each class with like three slow breaths, and they really talk about breathing, but I don't know what they hear. Is there anything that you could suggest that I might be able to say to middle school kids that are, I I can see what's happening. They're hurting and they're responding in ways that's not gonna lead to their success of even graduating from high school, which is a biggie.
2: Well, what I've learned as far as dealing with my own family, especially since I've been out, is a lot of times it's not what you say to them, it's what they say to you. And it's more about listening to them. I have to do a lot of listening, <laughs> and they have a lot to say if, if you let them open up. Because a lot of times we, they look at us as adults, and they and they kind of think we're speaking at them. But sometimes they'll tell you everything they need to hear just by hearing what they have to say, and they'll guide you. They'll guide you in the way to go. Just, just listen.
4: I guess what do I need to be in order for them to feel safe to talk to me you know what I mean Mm. they aren't particularly talking to me all of them Mm -hmm. that I would like to talk to me so in my persona I think there's something I need to do
2: well I'm not really sure personally I'm not really sure how to actually approach open that subject but sometimes maybe it's just catching some one on one and just asking hey how are you doing? And then just allowing them to feel safe and feel free. As if, you know, whatever you're gonna, whatever they have to say won't leave that, leave that space. Because a lot of times even sitting on the inside when when we were doing grip, the, the one of the biggest components of it is building that that safe container where someone feels safe to be themselves and speak out without feeling fear of either some kind of repercussions or whatever they're saying, ending up being out in front of everyone. Just feeling that mm. you're there for them and that you're not gonna let them down. And, and once that, and just there, there's different layers to yeah. building that container, to making them feel safe and making them feel comfortable. And once they're in that space, and you just listen.
4: Thank you.
0: You know, to validate what you're saying is, guys in the program used to say, damn, I wish I'd known that when I was 15. Right? And we kept hearing it. So finally he said, well, let's go tell them. So we we have been working with youth, um, Mm -hmm. with former lifers like these gentlemen, in a Richmond uh, youth center, Pretty, pretty gritty place. Uh, and also in a high school in Novato for two years. And uh, w- exactly what Terrell said was w- one thing we learned is, you know, as the Navajo saying pointed to, is um, accountability comes from meaningful relationship. And the main thing we we felt we achieved success in was in bonding with these kids, you know, so it wasn't just sort of a two-hour class once a week. We did a camp, a 24-7 week-long camp where they uh, had to write poetry, which we didn't tell them beforehand. <laughs> 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 they were pissed off, but they did... Sp- <laughs> they spit it out, you know, uh, at the end, and the whole community came, and um, and that was that did a lot, you know, it's just... It, meaningfully connecting with them, and, and giving them the gift of your presence, and your ear.
1: Thank you. My name is Sylvie, um, and um, I have a, a question for you. I was very touched by your talk. Um, You mentioned that um, emotional violence was very present in your life and um, I was wondering, you spoke about the aspect of you being emotionally violent but um, was there a time when you really felt the emotional violence that was that happened to you you know what I mean it's not just you being violent but you must have had a lot of emotional violence or violence towards yourself Um, did you kind of reconcile or think about that you know like Mm -hmm. um, what I'm trying to say is um, you know you are the victim of violence as well and with how did you resolve that how in your heart, like that's very difficult.
2: Well, yes, yes, it was. I mean, for a lot of my life, I did deal with a lot of emotional violence growing up as far as not feeling good enough, not feeling that I deserved anything. And in a lot of ways that, that led me to sabotage my life because when good things happened to me, it just felt too good. And somehow I'll do something to just mess it up and just, learning to actually sit back, delve into those moments from a from a later perspective and sit with those feelings and not just stuff them anymore because that stuffing them, they're going to come back up in other ways throughout my life, and they did. And they came out as me lashing out at other people when I felt something that felt similar to that past moment and being able to stop and go into those moments and sit with them. mm mm-hmm. And deal with that pain, not just gloss over it, not do other things to cover it up like drinking or drugs, you know, because a lot of times when there are things that hurt us, and I'll, I'll use myself for an example, I would do other things to cover it, whether it's work, work overworking, whether it's smoking pot or drinking, because I don't want to feel those things. I want to numb them. I don't want to deal with it. So by not dealing with it at that moment and just masking it for for a minute, it's like we can all get pills to cover a symptom, but what about the problem? And that problem still exists when I'm alone, sitting with myself of not feeling like I'm good enough, not feeling like I'm worthy of anything. And to sit in those moments and, and actually just sit with that hurt and actually just sitting in that fire and letting it burn, just letting it burn clean and leave nothing but ashes and come out of the other side feeling new. And I had to do that. And it's not one time, it's not a one time deal sometimes. Sometimes I had to do it multiple times, just sitting with that, sitting with that hurt, sitting with that pain of my things from my childhood, things from my adulthood and just really just dealing with it. So I did. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Is it possible to get a copy of those um, guidelines or goals that you you read to us? That you know for the group. That you're you doing mean the, the piece
0: I read about what we're learning? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I can give you a copy. You can multiply. I, also, I, what we did is we, we have flashcards that are part of the curriculum. So the Sita piece that Terrell spoke about, we brought some extra cards near the door. So feel free to take those as okay. well.
4: I, I have a relative, a young man who's 20. 20? now in prison. And so I think, although they don't have that program in his prison, he's in another state, um, I think that might be something that would make him think so. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, we're, we're, you know, we filmed the class for a whole year after years of negotiating. And so we made an instructional video series that is like 85% done. And and the goal is to reach as far as we can with that, because a lot of the footage is guys like this teaching the material. And uh, there's a dignity that comes back in when these folks are amplified rather than infantilized, you know, so Mm -hmm. let's show you how you can be an upstanding citizen. Just look like me and act like me. You know, the inference is not so useful there, but to Actually, put them in front, and because and, and, this is what happened, you know, there was no rehabilitation. So, we, we found out what to do together, and, and, and now we want to spread it. <laughs> Great. We have time for one more. Sure. Last question. My name is Maria, and thank you, you three, for being here. Uh, Thank you for the new meaning of uh, the word crime in my life with your what-if concepts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you explain a little bit more of the emotional intelligence in a practical way of helping Mm -hmm. somebody with a violence in her soul? Right. So helping somebody who has violence in their soul is what I hear you say. I I think, you know, as it says in our mission statement, turning learning, turning healing, turning violence and suffering into learning and healing. It's built on the premise that there's hurt there. You know, anger is one of our cards. Anger is a secondary emotion. Underneath it are three other prime emotions. There's either hurt, or fear, or some experience of shame or humiliation. So if you are able to get to the feelings inside the feeling of anger, which could be either one of them or all three, right? Then you can sit with that feeling. Sit with that, meaning as it announces itself through your body and body signals, you show up. For that feeling that's the sitting in the firepiece that Terrell mentioned, and what happens through this practice of mindfulness is that the states of ego attachment uh dissolve as you sit with just what is, and you do it together with others, and you take bites as much as you can chew, but that's the practice, that's the practice. And then the other part underneath it is important to inquire is like, well, what's the need? Like, like the Rosenberg saying, right? Violence is always a tragic expression of a need. Why tragic? Because someone's getting hurt. Why always? Because if it's violent, you get always hurt. So what is the need? is a very important inquiry because very often, uh, you know, the hurt people, hurt people piece is about lashing out from a pain that you don't know what to do with. And so we can take the mystery of, you know, why is there all this violence with explorations like that? And then, um, you know, the insight becomes operational as a behavior through practice it is something you need to cultivate and create communities around cultivating. And the exciting thing is that we know how to do it and it's totally possible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're, we're just getting going here. <laughs> so, um, anything you want to say in closing?
3: Um, you were saying about these kids and stuff and I flashed back to when I was a youngster and I, I was sitting in a juvenile hall and they're sending people to talk to you and try to make you turn yourself around and understand things. You know. I used to always trip that they would send someone you know, looking like me and where I'm from and the man they would send to me you would have alligators on his shirt and tassels on his shoes and <laughs> stuff and I had nothing in common with this man so why was I going to listen to him? Until I learned that, you know, it's like when I go back now, you know, I've walked that line. I, I wear those boots that those guys wore. So we have a relationship there. And sometimes it's not the message, it's the messenger. You know, so whatever it takes to get that message across, that's what you got to do. You know, like um, like when you talk about solidarity, I'm from that area. Oh, let me at those guys. I'd love to let, talk to them and <laughs> tell them what time it is. No way you got to change your life. Cause That's the part that's real hard for a lot of guys is to... Um, Get rid of that facade. I gotta be tough. I gotta be that guy. That's nonsense. You can be a compassionate man. That's what they gotta learn. And they gotta see it and witness it. So I try to model it every day. When we go into these prisons and talk, I tell everybody, I come to be an example. So let them know that they can do it too. And I always put that in my word. You too will do this. You too can do this. To, to reinforce that we all have worth, that we all have good. And all we gotta do is work at it and have that opportunity. And for men like Jock to bring programs to help, you know, everybody. We can do this together as a society. We really can't, but we just got to work hard at it.
2: Yeah. Um, I'd just like to thank you guys for giving us this opportunity to speak to you. I mean, it's not often that people want to hear guys like myself speak, guys like George speak. You know, for years we didn't have a voice. We didn't have an opportunity to say that, hey we too want to help out we want to help to solve the problems that we help create and a lot of people don't want to give us that opportunity but in reality like jock said earlier those walls work real good they're not there they're not only there to keep people inside but they're there to keep the outside people outside so that communication link you have people that are going to come back into the communities but if you treat a man like an animal he'll act his act, he'll act accordingly but if you treat them as, as part of your community, when they come out, they'll want to be part of that community. They'll want to be part of that and help create, help to build that community. And I thank you for the opportunity because just allowing us to sit here today says something about you guys, wanting to be a part of that greater community connection. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: So, yeah. Thank you, and uh, thank you for continuing to ask us to be back here and visiting us in the prison system, and thank you for those who have supported us. You know, we're, we're not too high on the totem pole of charities, so it's uh, extremely uh, gratefully received. So, thank you.